Right, morning everybody. Please grab hold of your Bibles. Turn up Acts chapter 15, uh, whatever page number that is. Somebody shout out the page number again for us, will you? 780. Oh, do you know, I'm, this is one of my favourite chapters of the Bible, so I'm very excited about opening this up to you, and I'm really echoey. What's going on? Hold on a minute. Is that a bit better? Oh, I'll bring that back then. Hold on. Is that better? I still feel loud. The idea of me speaking quietly, that ain't going to happen really, is it? Let's face it, that's not going to happen. Right, okay, hopefully you've managed to find page 780. We're in Acts chapter 15. We're moving through. Uh, God's help. I need God's help. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you that you're a God of grace. We thank you that in the singing of those words, we get a better understanding of who we are, what our need is, and how you treat us. And we praise you for that. But we want to see it in action, Lord, today. Would you show us your intent for the people of this planet that you've made? Would you show us how to know you, how to respond to you, how to enjoy your intention to work and change us? Would you help us, Lord, in this? Would you help me to communicate clearly? Would you help all of us to listen with humble and grateful hearts? Would you show us what to do with it? Uh, We pray you would be kind and gracious to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so you've got Acts chapter 15 there, and um, you'll know that it's, well, getting the message right is everything, isn't it? If you don't get the message right, you will be totally misunderstood, uh, or the the whole direction of travel will go in a different direction, won't it? And I've probably used this with you before, but uh, some of you may know at the time when uh, the British were fighting the French in the early 1800s, they didn't have uh, Instagram, they didn't have Telegram, they didn't have any means of communication other than um, by um, a, a strategy that would be sent from hilltop to hilltop, certain semaphore signals to get a message across. Okay, So the British forces have been fighting the French under Napoleon in um, uh, over in northern France. Somebody who's better at history will be able to tell me more about this. Wellington, the Duke of Wellington, was the chief, uh, the head officer of the British forces. Uh, and it, uh, all England was on tender hooks. Because if the French beat us there, there was nothing to stop them running rampage across the English Channel and up through the UK, and we'd all be singing the Martianaires and eating frog's legs. Uh, so there was a measure of nervousness. So the day of the battle, everybody didn't know quite how it's going to end, and partway through the day, usually, well, it was due to be sunny, but a cloud kept coming, cloud kept coming. Partway through the day, the message came from northern France across the Channel to the beacons, and the bit that they got was... Wellington defeated. The hearts of the Englishmen, as it went from beacon to beacon to beacon, sank as it reached the royal courts. What are we going to do? But the problem was, was that the message, Wellington defeated, was only part of the message. See, the cloud came across so the message couldn't be complete. The actual message was, Wellington defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. And now we don't have to eat frog's legs. You see, getting the message right is absolutely everything. 
Now, it might be getting the message right when it comes to the shopping lists in the home. It might be getting the message right in terms of the school report that comes in. But there is no place more important to get the message right. You know this as well as I do. No place more important to get the message right than what it is God says to us in his good news that we understand as the gospel. What is the centre of the Christian message? And I want to tell you that it, well, you get a bit of a clue in the fact that it is a message. It is a proclamation. It is good news about something done. Now, and I have to say that for the moment because there's plenty of people, sometimes within the church, but definitely outside of the church, who are saying, well, actually, it doesn't matter what the message is, because basically all that matters is you try to pull up your bootstraps, live a good life, help other people, um, and, and be good a bit. But the problem with that is, that is a message in and of itself. That message relies on you doing something and then God will give you the thumbs up. But what if that isn't the message? What if that isn't the centre? What if that's the wrong message? And we're going to find today, by digging into the book of Acts here, that the, getting the right message is absolutely everything. So much so that as we've been moving through this book of Acts and we've been seeing how the bomb of Jesus has gone off and the ripples are going out everywhere, as people's lives are being changed, as they're being presented with him as Lord and King, who's retaking planet Earth one soul at a time through this message of salvation and hope, as we see this happening, they stop everything. They stop everything because there's a threat to the message. If you don't get the message right, you've lost it all. Now, for us as a church, we view ourselves as a gospel church. If you're a visitor, I hope you get that sense that we're not a church that's primarily telling you, do this, do that, do that. What we're saying is, look at Jesus. Hear his message. Trust in him. And if ever we drift from that, we're going to be in trouble. And we want to look at a little bit today at what it would look like to drift from that message. Okay? Right, so we've seen the message of the risen Lord Jesus Christ moving forward, claiming ground by grace, and all of a sudden we come to the beginning of chapter 15. Okay, have a look, look, look down at it. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. Okay, so the place where the Jewish nation started around Judea, about 200 miles north, I know it says come down, it's because Jerusalem was, uh, was on the top of a mountain and Antioch was not, but it was in the north, 200 miles to the north, where the centre of church life had gravitated to. The apostles um, were based, uh, many of them were based up in Antioch and they were sending the gospel out to the nations from there. Some Jewish dudes come up the 200 mile because they've got a bee in the bonnet. And can you see what the bee in the bonnet is? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. You can imagine there wouldn't be very many men in their Bible study. <laughs> I can go into one if that's what you say. All right. Remember, circumcision was a right and a way of de demonstrating and marking you out to the world that you were part of God's chosen people. That's if you're a fella. And keeping the law, well, look at it, verse 5, the, the, the same thing comes up. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish believers, must be circumcised and required to obey the whole Jewish, uh, sorry, the, to obey the law of Moses, the whole Jewish law. Do you get that? So the message is being changed. Up to this point, the message has been, trust in Jesus. He is the way we get uh, connected to God. There is nothing we can bring to the deal except our calamity and our mess. But now they're coming and they're saying, actually what you need to do is you need a bit of Jesus and you need to follow this religious pattern and follow these Old Testament laws. Okay? 
Why would they do that? What's going on? Can I tell you, they were really well-meaning. They'd, they were Christians who loved the Lord Jesus. They'd responded to the gospel of grace. But why were they saying this? Well, I think it's something to do with the fact that the law of God in the Old Testament was held in such high regard. It was like a temporary structure that was put in place over the Jewish nation to get them ready for and to hold them in place and to show them their need of the real saviour when he came. But it was so precious to them because it showed them something of what the character of God was like, something what it meant to be his own set-apart people. And whenever they felt insecure in the nations around who had no time for God whatsoever, they would look to their law with a good sense of comfort and pride. Over time, a little bit of prejudice too. And then what they would do is they were now at this point where they were looking out and seeing people from all kinds of nations responding to the good news that Jesus Christ is risen, reigning and Lord. But these people who trusted in Jesus have got all kinds of mess and junk in their life. All kinds of bizarre sexual practices were going on amongst the nations, some of which are far too rough and degrading to mention in church. All kinds of violent habits and tendencies and aggression was in de- demonstrated amongst the nations. All kinds of ugly idolatry and the worship of almost anything. It was just when you stop worshipping the true and living God. You don't worship nothing, you'll worship anything. And so here are these sincere Christians from a Jewish background saying, do you know what? We've got to give them at least something to help them figure out what it looks like to live for Jesus. So they need Jesus, but to be sure that they're in, to be marked out and to make sure they're okay with God, they also need to go through these rites, these um, actions and follow these laws. And I can imagine that well, it, well, we look at it here. It says there, verse 2, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. This was right at the heart of the message. It was people like, oh, yeah, I can see something in what they're saying. We don't want people who are standing for Jesus just to live any which way they want and make a disgrace of him amongst the nations. Uh, maybe the answer is to give people rules. And to put them back under that old thing, even though it was a temporary structure. Um, I remember, uh, uh, I remember the, the, the funny feeling I got when I stood next to Niagara Falls. I don't know whether any of you have been there. It's this massive section of river. Uh, it's just, it, you know, it's about a mile across, and it, it, there's rocks, and you just see all this water, and it's travelling at such a pace, it is literally scary. And although I'm sort of, I don't know, about 30 metres back from the edge, and with a big handrail in front of me, I don't know whether you're like this, but when you sense there's danger around, you start envisaging what happens if the worst happens. So I'm always standing there, leaning over there with my kids, trying to have a bit of fun, but going, what happens if the barrier fails? You know, you suddenly start going, what, what would I do to survive? And oh, what happened if a really bad wind comes along and blows me into the middle? Or what happens if I go and look up there and walk over on that bridge there and the bridge collapses? What would I do to survive? How would I get through? I don't feel safe. Uh, is it just is just this my psychosis, or do you are you the same like you know you're, you're walking along maybe an old castle and you look and what if the wall falls and you start imagining? So there I'm. I'm standing on, on Niagara, and of course you think, okay, right. If I'm to survive, if I'm to be, li- if I'm to live. I'm going to need something or somebody to save me, okay? But while I'm waiting for them, I'm going to need a little bit of help too. So I can imagine that, this is me going through my mind as I'm standing there, I can imagine that I'd be okay for a bit, 
if somebody chucked me one of those life rings. Have you seen them, the big orange things, you know? And because the, the orange thing would keep me my head above water, and if I just kicked, like, a, I don't know, like, like, like a mad one, maybe it'd keep me away from the torrents just long enough to be saved. Okay? Steve, why are you telling us this, this? The law and the Jewish rites are a little bit like a rubber ring for somebody who's heading over Niagara Falls. They're a temporary thing that might slow down the inevitable death, that might show you what you need, i.e. you need something that will carry you in the opposite direction and keep your head above water for long enough. But they also, it also shows you that you can't get out yourself. It was a temporary structure to do that. And now there's Jewish people who want to turn back to it. And you say, okay, well, well what does this matter to us? Well, I know there's people in this room, because I have a tendency towards this as well, and I'm trying to recover from it. There's people in this room who really like the idea of being able to keep themselves afloat. Is that you? So when we sing about grace on a Sunday morning, it connects a little bit, but you're already scrabbling around for something to give you a sense of confidence that you can bring something to the deal with you and God. You know, there's something hardwired into us that we are, by nature, seeking to be self-righteous. Now, you can see it in somebody else. Oh, they're so self-righteous. But it's hard to see it in ourselves, isn't it? I just like, I just like the idea. No, 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 I'll push it. I'm in love with the idea that I can save myself. And I wonder whether some of that has slipped in. And I wonder whether that is why Paul and Barnabas... Go, whoa, easy, don't go there. But just before I say that, some of you may be sitting here and be tempted to say, um, well, I don't give a rip, God says he helps me out, that'll do, that's good enough for me. And I wonder if that's the case, it could be that um, that's just a little sign of indifference to how much it has taken for God to save you if you're a believer here today. It could be that you're in danger of going and saying, well, oh well, forgiveness, thank you, I'll just carry on living my life the way that I want to. Do you see there's dangers all around? Do you see that it's important to get the message right? So that's what they try to do in verses 6 through to 19. Could somebody who's got a loud voice where you are read for us verses 6 through to 19 as we find out how this whole thing, this drama develops? Yep, if you just go on, go on down to, hold on, 19.
Brilliant. Thank you so much for reading that. So they all gather, they all take a, a bit of a holiday trip down back to Jerusalem, the place where it all happened, the place where the gospel message was going out from, and said, right, let's deal with this. We need to get the Christian gospel message sure. So I love that in verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. I bet that was a long meeting. After much discussion, now if you think Christians can talk, that's sort of like uh, yeah, yeah, a summary for this one went on for quite a long time. But towards the end, three of the big weeks stand up, and we'll look at what each of them say in turn. The first one is the Apostle Peter. Okay, He wasn't the chief among there. It was James, the brother of Jesus, because Peter had been going out and doing an itinerant ministry. But they'd added all this up, they'd listened, and they said, right, we need to find out what God has been doing. So he stands up and says, brothers, you know. Okay, So he's now speaking out of experience of something that all of them would have seen at that time. You'll remember it from Acts chapter 10 when we looked at it, but let me read it and fill it in for you. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. People who were not part of the Jewish nation, God went after. They're precious to him. He wants people to be saved. And he made the choice that they would hear the news about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what difference it makes for their lives from my lips. Do you remember I tracked off to see see Cornelius? And God had prepared his heart... Verse 8, look at this. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. It says nothing there about them obeying a law. It wasn't that the Gentiles had come and said, please help us, we need to be saved, tell us about Jesus. No, God took the initiative to go to people who hadn't got their ducks in a row, who hadn't sorted out their junk, who hadn't got, look God, you've got to save me, look at my big long list of why I deserve it. The Lord gave them the message and said, hear Jesus, trust in him, find comfort to know that you can be rescued from this life and the life to come and the uh, the judgment that is impending by Jesus. And to prove it, says Peter, God the Holy Spirit came and did a work amongst them. Look at this verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. They hadn't done anything Jewish. They hadn't been to a synagogue, they hadn't been to a temple, they hadn't followed the law. But God said, I want them. I want them to hear this good news. And that is the heart of the God of the Bible. Whatever size, shape, background, language you are, please know that there is one God and one gospel for every single person on planet Earth. We have the same need and we get to it the same way. It is by simply responding to the grace of the work of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness and justification he provides. Verse 10, now then, why do you try to try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Now, I got a bit of a discovery here. Look down at that again. What is surprising about verse 10? I thought when I started reading this that the snooty Jewish Christians were putting the non-Jewish Christians to the test. But who is it that they're putting to the test, verse 10? Look at it. What's it say? Who is it that those Jewish Christians are actually putting to the test? God. 
They're saying to God, I don't really think you can make a change in that person's life without giving them some rules to follow. Oh, that sounds like me sometimes. <laughs> Maybe it sounds like you. Maybe you see a brother or a sister and you think, you know what, they're, they're not doing great spiritually. Let's give them some rules and maybe that will give God a bit of a helping hand as to what he needs to do in their life. Not here. Peter says, how dare you? How dare you try to suggest that God won't grab a hold of a heart and change that desire? You don't need to add rules to that. The Holy Spirit is active and at work changing people's hearts. God is offended when you require more of other people than he does. And he's not interested in the outside, he's interested in the inside. And it's as people meet Jesus Christ's grace on the inside that they get changed and become more like him. The only entry gate, says Peter, is Jesus. I need to slow this down for a second, just test whether you've got this. This is the test. If I say, you don't deserve anything from Jesus other than judgment, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? The only thing you deserve from Jesus is judgment. So that's what the Bible teaches. In fact, the only qualification for being able to receive from Jesus his mercy is your own recognition that you don't deserve it. If you think you deserve it, you can't have it. And Peter knew that. And he looks at them and says, well, look, verse 11. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Are you humiliated by that? I hope so. That's not trying to rob you of any dignity. But here we're being told that the only way we are saved is by the total finished work of Jesus Christ. You have no standing before God apart from the, the standing that he offers you in his name. That is amazing. You may have a high view of yourself, but God doesn't. <laughs> he knows how desperately you need him. So let's go back to Niagara Falls, okay? <laughs> go back to Niagara Falls, and there you are. You're in this rubber ring. You've got, you're have got half drowning. You've got disaster coming at you. The car, tidies can. You're fending it off just a little bit, kicking away. But actually, as you're kicking away and realizing you can't save yourself, you're just getting a sense of, I need somebody who can do this for me. So along comes Kosh in a powerboat. 500 horsepower power, powerboat, big outboard engines. Okay? And he comes and he just like turns on a, on, on a tuppence, and there he is. And you're just utterly wasted. You've got no, oh, I can't do anything at all. And he leans over with his strong hands and he drags you up into the boat. Okay? Ben's sitting there next to him, smirking away, thinking this is hilarious. Kosh does the big lever thing. And off you go, back away from the falls up there. And Ben looks at you and goes, come on, kick then. Come on, keep your rubber ring on, keep kicking, keep kicking. You don't really, Ben, okay, you don't really. You'd say, ridiculous, as if that's going to help. No, no, you're saved totally, not by anything you can. If you're on the powerboat, you don't need to kick. You see? 
Peter is saying, us Jews, he says, and anybody from any nation, the only grounds of you being safe and in relationship with God is the power that he brings to it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't contribute to it. You can't add to it. It's got 500 horsepower or more. All you can do is enjoy it. And that's what Peter was doing. Paul speaks up very quickly, doesn't he? Paul and Barnabas, they quickly come on in verse 12. They only get one verse, which is u- uh, unusual because Paul's usually centre of attention here. The whole assembly began, became silent. Oh, something significant must have been said. As, as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them amongst the Gentiles. And what is absent is there is what you've got to spot. There's no list of, oh, guess what? And the, the, the Gentiles deserved it for this, this, and this. And they started obeying the laws. And so God did some more signs. It didn't work like that. God was just lavishly merciful to them. And then comes your hardcore conservative dude, the Jew of Jews. Here is G, uh, uh, James, the brother of Jesus. Now, if ever you've got any doubt that Jesus was who he said he was, okay, you've got to look at the character of James. Now, I don't know whether you've got a big brother. What would it take to persuade you that your big brother was God? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's not going to be an easy thing. Because we told in the, uh, uh, other places, we find that James wasn't a believer in the Lord Jesus until after Jesus had been resurrected from the dead and he'd met him again. And suddenly this younger brother starts to believe that his older brother isn't just a nice dude, isn't just a, um, a guru type teacher, but is the living son of God who is raised from the grave and rules over all, everybody on planet earth. And so here's James, the Jew of Jews, stands up and he goes to the safe place. He says, Peter's talked about his experience. Paul's talked about what God was doing. But I'm going to tell you and remind you that the Bible always promised this. It was always promised that this would be the way. That that temporary rubber ring would be removed because the power boat has come. Look at it here, verse 15. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. This is God's promise after the exile, um, when, the, when the Jewish people were taken off because of their sin, there was the promise of a coming age. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who do these things that have been known for ages. All the Gentiles who bear his name, the people of the nations who've got his name written into their lives and they respond to his king when he comes. That is always the way it will be. Therefore, it is my judgment, therefore, verse 19, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And that's the whole nine yards there, isn't it? He's trying to say that there's ways in which good, sincere people of faith may make it difficult for others to hear and believe in Jesus because of the expectations they put upon them. Oops. I wonder about what that looks like for me and my family. Are there any ways in which I'm making it difficult for my children to trust and believe that Jesus is all they need by any outward rules and expectations that I put upon them? Are there any sort of hoops that we expect people to jump through if they're to gather with us on a Sunday morning? Maybe they've not had any kind of church background before. They've just lived according to the way that the pattern of what they've been brought up to, uh, to believe and to follow. Got music? We're in the clear. Um, 
and maybe there's things, uh, we, the ways in which we expect people to behave to give them a sense that they're okay and going to be okay with God. Maybe it's things that they wear or the way they speak or the, or the kind of things that they laugh about. We say, well, you know, you can come amongst us a little bit, but you won't really know that you're loved by God until you've changed that, that and that. Is there any way in which we make it difficult for people to hear? Do we say to people, well, you can only hear if you come in and be like us, rather than us doing what well, Peter and the Apostle Paul did, which is take the gospel to, to communities and to places and to people that are nothing like what God would have them be, and trust that by just telling Jesus, the Lord will do a work in their heart. It's a good question for us, isn't it? If we are not resting 100% in total acceptance achieved by Jesus, then any action we do will be soaked in our own fear or our own pride that will only fuel our sin. And it will rob God of the glory that he is the one, the only one who saves and he saves by grace. Now, I said to you a little bit earlier that I'm a recovering legalist. I'm trying to get over it. I just naturally go that way. I I just have a heart that tends towards self-righteousness. And because I'm not that different to you, I just want to give you a few little hints, a few little areas. And I I could have done about 10 of these. I'm only going to do three or four. Little ways that are little clues to you that you have that instinct in your heart to try to grab hold of things to make you feel more safe in God's eyes and in his love than Jesus can make you. And it will play out, not so much in, your, um, in the way in which you do church primarily, it will play out in the horizontal, in the way that you do life, but it will be an echo of how you are going vertically. Okay, so here's one. Are you a person who's naturally quite scrupulous? You've got a whole world of laws. You've got a law for almost something for everything. gives you a sense of control and makes you feel like you can look at yourself in the mirror. You don't think too deeply about it, but every time one of your laws is contravened by you or somebody else, you just get really, you just suddenly feel very insecure all of a sudden. If that's the case, there's a sense in which you're trying to over-control your world rather than know that whatever comes at you, you are loved by grace and God is for you, irrespective of your performance or the breaking of rules. What about, is one... Uh, I don't know whether there's many people like this here but or not, but if you're a really nice person, if you're a really nice person, it could be that you're just a nice person. Or it could be just a little hint that you're a people pleaser. You feel perhaps you, you have to say yes to everything. You know, if there's extra service or everything, extra things to be done, you'll be there, but you'll sort of be putting on a smile, but really you'll be a bit resentful that you've got to be there. But you've got to be there nonetheless because you can't say no. Uh, You've got a real fear of letting others down or somebody saying something bad to you. So you're just really, really nice. And it could be because, well, that's a sign of terrible insecurity in the midst of the grace of God. That the Lord loves you wonderfully even when you don't please him because he loves you through Jesus Christ. That is the grounds by which you relate to him, nothing else. What about if you have a tendency towards being judgmental or critical? Um, over almost anything. Uh, usually it's, it's vain things, like you found something that you, maybe you're good at or you feel un- that you understand or you have achieved in. Maybe it's in the domain of how you look 
or the political views you've got or the kind of education you've got or, or the gifting that you've got. Maybe it's something there and you feel like you've done quite well and so when other people, it's not even on their radar or they fail at it or don't do very well at it, then you're very quick to just have a sneer come to the side of your mouth. You elevate that thing that you succeed in to such a high level because it gives you a sense of safety and security. So let's go for an easy target. Let's pick on the teenagers. (laughs) Uh, It's a possibility that just as your parents are real hypocrites, you could be, but it will be in a different domain. So I think of one teenager who, um, who, who saw that the people in church were hypocrites and weren't always honest. And sometimes were sort of, they felt like people uh, were, were, were playing, play acting and not really being um, authentic in one way or another. And that particular teenager just hated that and so went over the top, priding themselves on their own honesty and authenticity. I'm not a hypocrite. At least I'm not like one of those people. So I can reject them and I can look down on them and say that I'm better than them, sit in judgment upon them, and I'm probably right, but what I can't do is look back and say, well, actually, I'm prideful, and perhaps I'm hiding behind my own openness and authenticity rather than facing up to the junk in my own life. I can minimise my responsibility to love and hide in my pride. Do you see? So if you're a judgmental or critical person, it could simply be that you're not confident that Jesus and his grace gives you a standing that is more secure than anything you ever could do. What about, finally, if you're a person who can't take criticism? I mean, all of us struggle taking criticism. But sometimes you're really fearful of others cracking the veneer that you're okay. So when undesirable things come your way or you act in a way that is worrying or maybe your best plans prove to be a little bit selfish, you very quickly blame shift. You focus on what a victim that you've been or all the hard things that have made it difficult. Or you label people who try to move towards you with grace. You label them as vicious and cruel and unloving and not understanding how guilty you feel. You do anything to guard yourself from the reality that you don't measure up rather than go to the Lord and say, I don't measure up. I don't measure up in the the way that I speak of people or the way that I look after my kids or or, or the attitude that I have towards people. I don't measure, measure up. I need someone who measures up for me. Oh, and it's called Jesus. And the amount that he measured up is so much more powerful than I did. And he's, he says, I get taken up into him. Listen, God says, come. Don't try to find your standing anywhere else other than Jesus. He invites us to come. That's why they wanted to get the message straight. And the only requirement of coming and being one of Jesus' people, being saved, being united to God for this life and for all eternity, the only condition is you bring nothing. Nada. You don't even try. He wants nothing from you and you can give him nothing that he hasn't already got. Do you believe that? Do you rejoice in that? That's something to be celebrating. That's something we should be happy in. He just simply says, come. You don't go to Buckingham Palace when they're laid on a banquet and say, listen, love queen, I just sort of bought some Tesco value quiche to help you out a little bit. You don't do that. You just go and you stuff your face and enjoy the banquet. That's why we should be the happiest people around because it's all been laid on. We bring nothing. And if we were Pentecostals, everybody would be shouting, Hallelujah! 
something to be happy enough in this humdrum life. You don't bring your emotional penance and your big self-pity party to the Lord. That's inverted pride. Don't go there. You don't bring your promises of a better effort or something that you think you can be in the future. That's pride again. You just simply come and sit with a bunch of other wasters who listen to another waster at the front and go, I can't believe it. God loves me. And he saved me through Jesus who loved me so much to go to a cross and pay the debt I cannot pay and rescue me from my sin. And so here is Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James standing up together and saying, get the blinking message right. All you do is put Jesus before people because he is enough. He is enough. Listen, there's loads more I wanted to say on some of the other verses and how what James says in verse 20 and 21. But I don't think we're going to bother because I think we've got to the place where we need to be. Do you think you're going to be able to sing the next song with a little bit more hope than you could at the start? Oh, I hope so. Let's stand and sing together.